that you're born an Italian if you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino. Then they make you roly-poly. You get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm your host, John Viola. And before we begin this week, let me just take a moment to say it is October, and that means it's my great pleasure to wish everybody out there a very happy and healthy Italian American Heritage Month. What a great time of year for all of us who are obsessed with our Italian American heritage. There's events going on all over the place, obviously, all of them this year being virtual, but there's celebrations, there's reflections, there's So many ways to engage our heritage and get a little bit deeper in this month of reflection about how proud we are of our Italian-American roots. And of course, leading into what we're talking about this week, it would not be Italian-American Heritage Month if the 12th day was not Columbus Day, a holiday we did a whole deep dive on in our last episode. And whether you like it or not, the reason that October also serves as Italian-American Heritage Month. So for those of you who are joining us for the first time, you're joining deep into our Conversations on Columbus miniseries. This is part five of what will probably be six parts on Columbus. Just to recap, we've laid out our goals and what our pursuit was here in the first episode. In the second, we studied the primary documents that would be used for us to sort of try to dig in and get a real vision of Columbus, the good, the bad, and the in-between. In our third episode, we gathered the major accusations against Columbus, the charges as we referred to them. The most important and significant claims that Columbus's detractors hold to when they advocate for his removal from the American popular mythology, his removal from the pantheon of American heroes. In the last episode, we tried to separate out what Columbus and Columbus Day and the statues and parades mean from an Italian-American perspective versus what they mean from an American perspective, because as I tried to share, I think in the exploration that I've been going through here in all of these weeks and weeks and interviews and interviews, I found that there's a different take on Columbus in my mind as an Italian-American than just as an American and somebody who's interested in history and how we memorialize it and how we celebrate our Americanness together, what constitutes a national mythology. So we tried to make sure that we kind of separated out what it meant to advocate for or against Columbus as both an Italian-American but also as an American at large. I hope we did that, and if you have not already listened to those episodes, I highly recommend you go back and listen to them in sequential order, because it will give you a lot of understanding about what we're trying to do here, and frankly, we'll reference a lot of what we've done before in these conversations. Because today we're going to hear a defense of sorts. In the 20-plus interviews that I've conducted, there were those who vehemently defended Columbus. They felt that the charges against him were based on false history, that they were really unfair slander. There were those who felt his criticism was overblown or too simplistic. And ultimately, there were those who while condemning certain actions in Christopher Columbus's life, felt that the man Columbus was being used as a cover for criticism of the entire Columbian exchange. So they wouldn't exactly exonerate Columbus, but they would also advocate some sense of leniency in our examination of him because, in a sense, we need to decide whether we're judging Columbus based on his actions or the impact of his actions on future generations. 
So the voices that you'll hear from today, like I say, some of them wholeheartedly defend Columbus. Others will do so with caveats or defend his place in the historical mythology more so than his actions as an individual. But the truth of the matter is, like I've said from the beginning, we've tried from the outset of this entire endeavor to seek detail and to ask tough questions and really ultimately to sit out in search of the truths that we can find. Maybe not the whole truth, maybe not enough to formulate an opinion, but to figure out where there is historical truth and where there is influence or bias or ideology affecting how people are writing about, speaking about, and debating about Columbus. I want to strip away everything that's impacted by bad history, frankly, and get to the bottom of what can we know about Christopher Columbus. And we'll, we'll see that same rigor and treatment towards objectivity and truth with those who defend Columbus as we tried to bring to those who condemn Columbus. And honestly, I feel like we've been able to bring a level of complexity that's really far too often ignored in this whole Columbus conversation. So hopefully everybody who's been listening for a while is feeling the same thing and hopefully understands the attempt to really dig into the minutia of history that we're going through here. And just for the record, I want to point out that I really don't like using the words accusation or defense. I feel like they're far too black and white. So when we talked about charges against Columbus, we kind of used the litigation model, the idea of some accusation, but one that is not necessarily substantiated. And here, I guess more so than defense, I want to talk about a rebuttal, vindication, justification, even explanation. These are the words that I've been throwing around trying to figure out what it is I'm trying to share, because it's not simply a defense in the sense of qualifying or defending his actions, but it's actually a rebuttal in the sense of clarifying his actions, either looking at them through a historical lens or actually trying to dig down into the historical sources to see what really were his actions, what were the context that he made his decisions in, and how did they actually impact the people that we're talking about both here in the indigenous populations in the New World and, and the crews that he brought with him. Uh, some of the accusations, as we discussed before, are how he treated his own crews. So these things are really explanations and deeper examinations into what I think are far too often sort of bombs of accusation that are just lobbed at Columbus, and we don't really get into the details of it, and it's, it's kind of easy to get caught up in these very extreme statements about him, but our job is to do the work. So before we dive into these explanations, first let's reiterate a little bit about what the charges are and what we settled on as the valid charges. And as I said, if you haven't already listened to the previous episodes, you really should go back and listen if this is your first time here. It's going to give you a lot more clarity and a lot more context of what we're talking about. So in episode 154, which was the third part of our series, we laid out these accusations. First and foremost, that Columbus was not necessarily, quote-unquote, the discoverer of America. And I came to the conclusion, based on a kind of consensus in all of the people that I spoke to, that the idea of discovery is just a terminological question. The bottom line is... For better or worse, October 12th, 1492 changed the world. On October 11th of that year, the planet was made up of two completely isolated hemispheres, and neither of them held a memory of the other. So we've talked about the idea of Norse settlements in the northern parts of North America and whether or not these two cultures had actually been in isolation, but the truth of the matter is, whatever had happened before, there was no historic memory in either of the cultures. And on October 13th of that year, that whole dynamic was exploded. Forevermore, 
the world was going to be one and these cultures were going to interact with one another in ways that were good and ways that were bad. So let's throw out the conversation about discovery because no matter what you call it, Columbus's voyage changed humanity. Now the second charge often lobbed at Columbus is that he was a bad navigator, a bad scientist. He was lucky he stumbled blindly into the ocean and ended up stumbling onto a world he could have never expected. And the truth of the matter is, again, the consensus from all of the academics that I spoke to in 20 plus interviews was this is just fundamentally untrue. And it's an interesting little uh, tidbit that I've, I've come to later in my research that a lot of these whole ideas that they thought the world was flat and Columbus knew it was round and this and that and the other, they come into our mythology from Washington Irving whose 1837 book, History of the Life and Voyages of Columbus, was very much a fictionalized and exaggerated version of the navigator's life that really did become part of the popular conception. So again, everyone I spoke to agreed, whenever someone says this was not a great scientist, not a great navigator, they're fundamentally wrong from a historical perspective. Now, another charge that we discussed that I think brings us into the realm of semantics is this idea that Columbus engaged in genocide. And again, there was almost complete consensus in everyone I spoke to, those who were pro-Columbus, those who were anti-Columbus, that you can't label Columbus genocidal because genocide is a premeditated act, a premeditated attempt to wipe out a population. And the disease that Columbus brought unknowingly and the disease that came later with further colonization was not only something that Columbus didn't do on purpose, but frankly something that neither he nor any of his men would have understood as germs. They, they had no concept of germs. They didn't know they were bringing diseases, nor that they were bringing diseases that local populations did not have any natural resistance to. So the demographic destruction of native populations simply cannot be pegged on Columbus as a conscious actor. So I feel it's safe to say we've cleared Columbus of some of these charges, but there are others that we really have to dig into here because they are those that are either credible or need to be put in context or need some further explanation or examination. And those are the charges of poor administration as the governor of Hispaniola, and ultimately the accusation that Columbus was engaged in behind encouraging of slavery. And for me, these two are really the whole issue here. And since I am the one driving this voyage of discovery, that's really what we're going to focus on, and that's what we're going to pursue in terms of trying to provide opportunities for his defenders. Those are the questions that I really focused on asking. Those who stood up to defend Columbus or who opted to put him in a different context or validate his decisions, I really wanted to talk to them mostly about how he administered these territories and the accusations that were made against him as a bad administrator, and most importantly, what was his true involvement, if any, with slavery? Because for me, that's the charge that Columbus and any historical figure really need to answer for. And I think part of the reason I'm so sensitive about this is because right now Columbus is being lobbed in with Confederate statues and Confederate memorials, and obviously slavery is at the root of people's discomfort with these Confederate figures in our history. But to many, Columbus is more akin to the Founding Fathers, and when we explored their history and their lives, there's slavery there too, with Washington and Jefferson and so many of the Founding Fathers who were engaged in what was unfortunately an incredibly common practice in the early American history. So while I've tried not to betray my own beliefs here, I will say I'm of the school of thought that slavery is the original sin of the United States, and for my own sake and for our audience's sake, I want to understand what Columbus really had to do with slavery. 
So before we begin looking into Columbus's work as an administrator, looking into his effect on slavery, I want to set the table by trying to understand Columbus in his time. I think that people are oftentimes uncomfortable contextualizing historic figures in the lives that they lived and in the times that they lived. And many will say, well, we have to hold them to our modern standards. But it's, it's difficult to do that. And if we're going to have conversations about Washington and Jefferson and even Abraham Lincoln and the truth of their lives in the historical context and in the times that they lived, we ought to give Columbus the same contextualization. And so to understand Columbus, I want us to understand his worldview, which was a very Christian one, and some would argue a millennial one. And I, and I want to just say for the record, that's not millennial like grew up in the 90s. That's millennial like millenarian. Those who take their worldview from a sense of the impending apocalypse, frankly, the, the, the return of God on earth and the biblical end times. So in one of my first interviews, I encountered an author who has written extensively on Columbus from this perspective. Professor Carol Delaney is an anthropologist and the author of Columbus and the Quest for Jerusalem, How Religion Drove the Voyages that Led to America. And Professor Delaney did not start out as a Columbus scholar nor Columbus defender. As a matter of fact, it was just a chance reference to Columbus's views on the end times that led her down this path to write what has been one of the more influential books in recent memory on Columbus. So let's listen to Professor Delaney and how she came to this topic and how she would describe Columbus and his time. Well, like most of the people today who are ruining all these statues, I knew basically nothing about Columbus, except in 1492, he sailed the ocean blue. That's about all I knew. And I was teaching a class at Stanford in the fall of 99 called Millennial Fever, you know, because everybody was getting crazy about the turn of the millennium. Planes were going to fall out of the sky. Computers were going to, you know, get wrecked. Anyway, I came across one tiny footnote about Columbus's uh, millennial and apocalyptic beliefs. And I thought, what? Well, I never heard of anything like that. And so that was the beginning. And I started investigating a little bit about that. But out at Stanford, there was very little material. And I was giving a lecture here at Brown in the anthropology department. And they asked me what my new interest was. And I said, Columbus. And they said, oh, you've got to go to the John Carter Brown Library. They have all this material about the so-called encounter. And so I did. And then I came and spent the summer there. And I got more and more interested in Columbus. And then I retired from Stanford and moved to Providence to do the research and to write the book. So the book we're talking about, Columbus and the Quest for Jerusalem, is where Professor Delaney, after 10 years of research, proposes that the real impetus behind Columbus's decision to make this voyage was the attempt to raise the funding needed for a new crusade. As she and others have pointed out, Columbus was very deeply devout, but also very dedicated to mysticism, to prophecy, and the idea of the end of the world. And as he saw it, the second coming could not occur until Jerusalem and the Holy Land had been returned to Christian hands. So I asked Professor Delaney to extrapolate out and explain to us a little bit about Columbus's faith and the role of religion in his life, because even beyond his faith's impact on his journeys and why he undertook this expedition, is the questions around his faith and how it relates to his understanding of slavery, human rights, dignity, and the like. So here's Professor Delaney's explanation of what kind of religious man Columbus was. 
he was always very religious. He always was very partial to the Franciscans. And so wherever he was traveling around, whether it was Portugal or Spain, he always stayed with them. And he thought the end of the world was coming, not in his lifetime. He figured out twice how many years were left. He wrote a book of prophecies from various sources, not just biblical ones, but other religious ones prophesizing the end of the world. So he felt he had a mission because Jerusalem had to be in Christian hands. The sepulcher had to be rebuilt so Christ could come again and save all the believers, which is also why he wanted and kept asking Isabella to send more priests to baptize the native people. Baptized people, first of all, can't be enslaved, but he also wanted them to be saved. And he thought they were natural Christians anyway. And so I think people don't realize that he was truly uh, such a religious man and a Franciscan. A tertiary, which means a lay Franciscan monk, but he wore their robes for the rest of his life. He was buried in them. And I think part of the problem is, I mean, I'm an anthropologist, so we know that you have to get into the mindset of the people there and you have to know the language. And Columbus, by the way, did learn the language. So we need to get into his mindset. I think you, you can't just judge him from a 21st century mindset. It's impossible. You don't know what the cultural context of his life was. And at that time, I mean, Christianity was very important, and especially to Columbus. I mean, he lived within a Christian worldview. There's no question in my mind. Was friends with Franciscans, you know, became this Franciscan monk. He believed he had a role to play in this whole story. One of the things I found most fascinating about my conversation with Professor Delaney is that she's actually a critic of organized religion. She shared with me her reservations about the Abrahamic religions and some of the specifics of her anthropological research. But I like the idea that we're not talking to somebody who is validating Columbus based on their own religiosity. We're talking to someone who is trying to put Columbus within a context of a worldview that was predominated by Christianity and a worldview that took into account with great severity what the Christian doctrine said about humanity and dignity and the like. So for me, part of the reason that I wanted to start with Professor Delaney's thesis is because if, as she proposes, we are to understand Columbus's reasoning behind his exploration as a religious one, that's going to impact how he governed and what he encouraged or allowed when it comes to his treatment of both the indigenous peoples and of his crews. So before we tackle the issue of slavery and the potential impact of his religious views on his potential participation in slavery, I want to address a lot of the other accusations that really stem from what most scholars agree was his inadequacies when it came to serving as governor of Hispaniola. I recently spoke to Professor Robert Carl, who wrote one of the most succinct and objective essays on Columbus's complicated legacy in his spring 2019 paper, Remembering Columbus, blinded by politics. And Professor Carl points out that Columbus never envisioned a permanent administrative role for himself here in the New World. Well, you know, I think the best uh, summary of Columbus is he was a genius at sea, a disaster on land. He was a, a brilliant navigator, very courageous. He had the ability to persist in the face of tremendous obstacles and opposition but he was a horrible governor of Hispaniola. 
Uh, and I think that we're learning more and more about how bad he was. I mean, I think documents, a whole trove of documents were discovered in the 1990s in Spain, which uh, described his mismanagement of Hispaniola. He really was never interested in being a governor. He was interested in being an explorer. And uh, so he did not fulfill that role well at all. And the documents that Professor Carl is referencing, we're going to talk about in a little bit. We've talked about them in previous episodes this idea that there are new documents discovered in Spain that are court documents that uh, lay out accusations against Columbus. And we've got a couple of scholars who speak to them a little bit in the episode. But I want to kind of explore this complicated relationship between Columbus the explorer and Columbus the governor, because it's going to impact his actions and eventually his legacy over time. I'm finding that if we separate Columbus into his voyages... If we just study his first voyage in 1492, which, of course, is the event commemorated in our public holiday, we really can see Columbus the heroic figure. I found that when reading the diaries and the primary sources about his first encounters in 1492, those who would criticize Columbus's treatment of Native Americans are oftentimes really selectively choosing how they use, translate, and interpret the source material. In fact, as Professor Delaney and many others point out, Columbus even named the first land that he set foot on San Salvador because he hoped that there the natives would soon find salvation in Christianity. And when we actually read his writings from the first voyage, we see Columbus address the Taino Indians as men of great intelligence. He applauds their social structures and goes into some detail around how much he admires their ingenuity and construction, their, their boats, their dwellings, their furnishings, the hammock, which comes back to the New World with Columbus. And in 1964, the American sociologist Margaret Hodgen wrote that Columbus approached ethnological phenomena with an amount of tolerance and critical detachment unusual in his day, and possibly also in ours. In fact, as Professor Delaney will point out, some of the relationships that Columbus built with the indigenous peoples in his first encounter would be lifetime relationships. The diary is all like in the first person. And it's all about Columbus saying how wonderful the people are, how gentle they are. They're natural Christians. He speaks very positively about these people. And he remained friends with the chief, Guacanagari, throughout. And you know, when the, when the first voyage, the Santa Maria went aground, right? And so he left 39 men there and left explicit directions. Do not go marauding. Do not go raping believe and take orders from Guacanagari, the chief. And he remained friends with Guacanagari throughout. And also when he took six natives back, when he went back, lots of them wanted to go, but he couldn't take them on this tiny little ship. All of them were baptized. Baptized people cannot be enslaved. One of them became his godson, his interpreter, and went with him on his other voyages. So Professor Delaney makes an important distinction that's going to come up a lot in this conversation about slavery, which is the idea that in Columbus's world, a baptized Christian cannot be enslaved. So if the historical sources are pretty clear that Columbus was in fact convinced that the natives should be baptized, concerning himself with their salvation, and building genuine friendships amongst the Taino, where does everything go wrong? In order for us to understand where slavery comes into this story, and what exactly the word means when it does come into the story. We're going to need to establish a couple of things. First of all, a little bit of a historical timeline around his four voyages. And secondly, 
ideas around the concept of slavery that we hold now and the concept of slavery as it was held in the 1490s. Let's first establish a little bit of broad stroke history. As Professor Delaney points out, when Columbus returns to Spain from his first voyage, he is in fact joined by a small number of natives. Now it's important to point out that these are guests and as evidenced by their baptism upon arrival in Spain, there's no intent to enslave these people. Many of them will return. Some of them will stay in Spain at the court of the Catholic monarchs. And as Professor Delaney pointed out, one of them will travel with Columbus as his godson and interpreter for the rest of his voyages. But when Columbus leaves, he's down to two of his three famous ships. So he's forced to leave 20-some-odd men on Hispaniola until he returns. And he does make very clear they're not to harass the natives, they're not to engage in any kind of behaviors that will sour the relationship between the Spanish and the indigenous peoples. But as we'll see, when he returns on his second voyage, things begin to change. One of the people who I actually had multiple interviews with is Columbus scholar and, and passionate defender, Rafael Ortiz. And I introduced Rafael in previous episodes. He's a man who, upon reading what he felt were disturbing accusations against Columbus on Facebook, he decided, as a man of Puerto Rican heritage, he really wanted to understand the truth behind these accusations because it, it impacted his own heritage. So he went out and got to the source material and over time turned himself into one of the world's foremost experts on Christopher Columbus and the source material, ended up writing three books, running a website, and he is adamant about the fact that none of these accusations is actually as clear-cut as Columbus's detractors would like us to think. Raphael maintains that based on his research and based on the multiple primary sources that he's using, if you study Columbus's immediate reaction to the indigenous Americans on his first voyage, you're going to get a picture of someone who is not only looking out for their souls, but engaging them as equals, acknowledging and celebrating the strength of their civilization, and ultimately, as we'll see over the course of multiple voyages, serving as their best protection against the malevolent intentions of a lot of the men he leaves behind. So I want to let Raphael explain for us what he would argue is a more accurate and unbiased take on where things started to change. You know, during the second voyage, things were going south. You know, it was the first time that, you know, Columbus came with a lot of colonists, but things were not working the way that they expect. You know, the weather was horrible, too hot. People were dying. By the time that they bring the ships, with food, the food was already spoiled. And also when Columbus returned, you know that his 39 men were dead because they disobeyed his orders to respect the natives. They told Columbus to arrest his ally. Uh, his name was Wakanakari, but Columbus, he, he hesitated. He did not have any evidence that he's the one who killed his men. And then he learned that the chief, you know, the, the one who was always his ally, he did not kill his men. It was somebody else called Kaunabo. Uh, that, that was the guy who was the troublemaker, Kaunabo. And uh, later, Wakanagari, he asked Columbus, would you help me fight Kaunabo? Would you help me fight him? Because he stole one of my wives because the chief were polygamous. And Columbus said, yes, because this, that's the same guy who killed his man in the beginning. And then he also decapitated 20 more Spaniards. So Columbus fought them. He defeated them. He sold some of them as slaves. And he made the rest to pay tribute. So here Raphael is finally introducing us to the concept of Columbus's involvement with slavery. 
And as you can see, it comes on the heels of his first encounter with intertribal warfare. Columbus has returned on his second voyage to the New World, and the men he's left behind have ignored his directives to treat the natives with care and have actually engaged in conflict with one of the other tribes in the area. So when Chief Wakanakari approaches Columbus about an alliance, Columbus partakes in a military compact based on the then European understandings of essentially just war. Now, one of the points that's continually come up in my interviews is the idea that when Columbus does engage in intertribal conflict, the tribe that he comes up against is the Caribs. We've heard a little bit about the Caribs in previous episodes, but we have to delve a little deeper here to understand how they're viewed not only by Columbus, but by the other tribes of the Caribbean. Because the Caribs, the tribe from which the Caribbean actually takes its name, are not just the largest and most warlike tribe in the area, they're also the only one engaging in cannibalism. And their consistent attacks and often brutal behaviors towards other tribes is what draws Columbus into this conflict. And the idea of their participation in cannibalism is important for a couple of reasons, mostly because it's going to impact how Columbus views their souls. And as we'll see, this will impact his thoughts and decisions around slavery. Well, a lot of people are accusing Columbus of genocide and killing. Um, That is not the case at all. He was friendly, as I said, with Chief Guacanagari and remained so for all the time that they were on Hispaniola. And apparently the Caribs were having war with them and they hated the Caribs. They said the Caribs emasculated the boys. They did all kinds of horrible things to each other. And then they came and attacked Guacanagari's people. And the Caribs apparently um, abducted some of the Taino uh, people and were, were taking them back to their place. Columbus sent some ships out to rescue them, and he did, and he brought them back. So Columbus returns second voyage. He sees his men dead. He tried to establish peace. Then he goes to explore. He returns back, and now the ships are killing people again. That's when he took the first, the 500 people that you were asking about, because these caribs, they, they would go and they would hunt people. Like people would hunt animals, they would hunt humans. In the beginning, Columbus did not believe this, but then when he came on the second voyage, he saw it. And everybody who had who have written from that era is a witness of that. So there is evidence of that. Uh, that's where the word cannibal comes from, from the word ca- ca- caribe, like the Caribbean Sea, cannibal. Uh, they would hunt the people, they castrate the, the young men, and they would fatten them up for later and eat them. The woman, they would rape the woman. If the woman have a baby, they would eat the baby. He also have also captured the cannibals because he made a treaty with one of the chiefs that he would get rid of them. So he took some of these people and sent them to Spain, but only from the Caribs, which would be the cannibals because they were bad and he, because he made an alliance. Also, that's the way that Colombo was pursuing the conquest by finding who could be his friends and making an alliance against uh, a common enemy. But also the slavery that he was proposing, he was even temporal at some point because he wanted that they learn Spanish so they can learn about the gospel. And according to Spanish law, you could not enslave Christians. So it was only about the Caribs. One of the other voices that I've spoken to over the course of these interviews that I like to go back to for his objectivity is Professor Teo Ruiz. And Professor Ruiz, while he explains the accusations around the Caribs and their involvement in cannibalism, 
adds a caveat about the accusations. Then the other side of the story is the encounter with the Caribs. The Caribs are a, a group of Arawaks and you know natives to the Caribbean who are moving from the area north of Venezuela, from all those Lesser Antilles, all the way up into when Columbus arrives there. The Caribs are now reaching the Greater Antilles, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Cuba. And they are accused of cannibalism. There are many debates as whether these people were really cannibals or not. But cannibalism is a charge that is used all throughout the Western civilization history to demonize your enemies. It was used against Christians at the beginning of Christian persecutions. It was used against Jews. It was used against Muslims. It was used against witches in the 16th century, that they are cannibals, that they are beyond humanity, and that therefore they can be enslaved. And, and the charge against Columbus is in this memorandum, which is published in the book of Chanka's account, in which he makes a suggestion to the Catholic monarchs to enslave the Caribs, not all the natives, the Caribs, because they were cannibals. Now, the Catholic monarchs said no. And the Catholic monarchs also in the laws of Burgos in 1504 and afterwards recognized the rights and humanity of the natives. One thing happens in, in the Iberian Peninsula and something else happens in the Caribbean and later on in Mexico and later on in Peru and Central America and so on, which is, no, we want to make money here and let's exploit these people as much as we can. So there, there is, is there many different intertwined histories here that you have to be very careful about teasing out the truth here and the truth there, and sometimes they are contradictory truth. The only reality is that in the memorandum, Columbus solicits or suggests to the Catholic monarchs to enslave the Caribs because as a punishment for their being so inhuman and beastly and consuming human flesh. So Professor Ruiz brings up two points that I think are really important for us to discuss. First and foremost, the Catholic monarch's reaction to his assertion that the Caribs should be brought back in slavery. And secondly, the eventual exploitation of native peoples by further Spanish conquests. There's an entire segment of our conversation that needs to be had around the idea that Columbus viewed slavery as an economic option to generate return on investment for his voyages. And this is an area where I found it very difficult to come down on one side or the other. It's important to note that this is the only instance in which Columbus engages in any type of slavery. So those that would argue that Columbus's recommendation is based on economic need overlook the fact that when he returns on this voyage with 1,700 plus settlers gathered by the Catholic monarchs, included in that horde are Europeans intending to engage in agriculture mining and the attempt to make fruitful this colonial enterprise. So Columbus's defenders would argue that had he intended to utilize indigenous peoples as an economic unit, as slaves, he wouldn't be returning to the New World with European laborers designated for the same kinds of economic activity that slavery might have been used for. And another important nuance that we need to understand when trying to dissect this most important issue 
is the existing European ideas on slavery, its legality, and its fairness. Most of the voices that I spoke to made efforts to clarify that in the late 15th century, the enslavement of prisoners of war, enemy combatants, or criminals was a common practice. Oftentimes today when we talk about Columbus, people tend to either by design or by historical misunderstanding conflate this episode of slavery with the transatlantic slave trade that would come a century later. And in one of my interviews with him, Rafael Ortiz laid out what I think is probably the most eloquent approach to understanding the difference and really putting the specifics of Columbus and his time in our assessment of him as a historical character. I just want to say, from this interview, the audio is not particularly great, so I want you to bear with me because I really appreciated the way Rafael laid this out, and I really thought it was important to include it even though the audio quality is not the best. I think the reason why the slavery issue is a big deal for people in North America is because when they hear the word slavery, they hear the word racism. And I always argue that racism and slavery are two different things because during that timeline of history, the Spanish were not thinking about they being superior to anyone and, uh, and they always spoke well about the Tainos. So they were not thinking about uh, racism. And I also say that he who was a racist before the Civil War was a racist after the Civil War, uh, meaning that racism and slavery are two different issues. We live right now in a time where slavery, it, it, it doesn't exist at least here in, in the United States, but slavery was common throughout history. It was a universal and it was practiced by, by everyone, meaning in, in every continent, in, in the old world, Africa, Europe, Asia, and also in the Americas, long before Columbus came to America. And it was mostly due to conquest, war, crimes, or death. So not every slavery was the same because when Americans in North America hear that word slavery, they think about kidnappings of innocent people. They think about racism, mistreatment, and permanent slavery. But if you read history, not every slavery was the same. For example, in the Bible, they, the people of Israel were uh, allowed to practice some forms of slavery, but the kidnapping part was forbidden. It was punished with death. And so it was with the Amurabi Code. Uh, some forms of slavery were practiced, but it's because it's a form of jail. When you go to jail, that's a form of slavery. It's a punishment. Uh, it's not the same that you're punished for being a criminal than to be you being an innocent person and being kidnapped and being sold as a slave for no reason. That's, that's two different things. So people saw slavery as a form of punishment. Yeah, and sometimes you can earn your freedom and so on. In the case of Christopher Columbus, when he came to the New World, they say that Columbus was the person who spearheaded the transatlantic slave trade, which is not true, because the Caribs, they were crossing the Atlantic to enslave the Tainos. Then you have the Aztecs, when Hernán Cortés came to, to Mexico, that these people, they have places where they sold their slaves, and apparently they would buy slaves to eat them, because every month they would have different celebrations to different gods, and according to that god, they would uh, sacrifice a particular person. It could be uh, a woman, it could be a man, it could be an old man, it could be a child, it could be a baby, 
and uh, they, they would skin people alive, they would cut them in pieces, and so on. And, and, and that's the funny thing, they, they want to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous People's Day. So I, I always say, if Columbus Day represents war, conquest, slavery, and genocide, then by the same logic, that's what Indigenous People's Day represents, because they were doing the same things, except that they add the cannibalism and the human, the human sacrifices. But you won't hear that anywhere, because those stories are being swept under the rug. As I said from the beginning, Raphael is an impassioned defender of Columbus, and I find it really interesting because he self-identifies as Taino, so I've always felt he brings a very unique perspective to this conversation. And I want to also go back to Professor Ruiz for his explanation of the history of slavery to give us a little more context. Slavery is as old as humanity itself, and most of the slaves in, in the classical world where people captured in war and most of them came from the areas in which the Slavic people live, which is why the word slave comes from Slavic people, from the area around the Black Sea and so on, which was a, but also Germans and also people from England and so on that were captured and work. However, a slave in in Rome or in or in Greece or in or even in North Africa and Islam had a very different phase in as much as there is not this economic systems that make you work on a plantation and because there's also a great deal of manumission and that is also that remains part of the Latin American experience that is to say the freeing of a slave manumitting them at the end of their lives and things like that is not uncommon in, in the Hispanic world as opposed to the North America, the, the US. So there are many historians, all this is on the continuous debate and contention, but there are many scholars, are certainly around 30 years ago, who argue about the differences of slave systems in the two Americas. Both of them were horrible but one had differences from the other. So I guess the point that I'm trying to get to here is when we talk about slavery, first and foremost, are we talking about the system that becomes the original sin of the United States? Or are we talking about the broader global phenomenon of captivity and labor? And it sounds to me from all the research that I've been able to do that what Columbus was engaging in was the latter the idea of sending back prisoners of war who, according to the Christian worldview of the time, were not human because of their engagement in cannibalism. Now, I'm not trying to prove a point or validate or vindicate Columbus here. All I'm trying to say is when we have this conversation about Columbus and slavery, we have to be very careful to speak about it in realistic terms. The one thing I will come down on is it is unfair, based on historical record, to conflate Columbus with the African slave trade, and the plantation system that comes to the United States long after Columbus's death. But if we're trying to give Columbus a fair trial here, it becomes a judgment decision based on each individual, and eventually, if we can have this kind of debate in a public forum, for the country to decide what is Columbus's legacy as it involves slavery. And one of the interesting things that I've come back to is, you know, we've had all these conversations about um changing the name of Columbus Day, like we talked about in the last episode. And many people have put forth the idea of naming it after Americo Vespucci. And a few of the scholars that I spoke to pointed out that, in fact, 
Columbus never owned a slave in his life, but Vespucci did. So it's really important that we try to unwind all of these things in a fair assessment of Columbus. Now, as a few of the scholars pointed out, when these 500 Caribs arrived in Spain, they were released and returned on the order of Queen Isabella. And here we begin to see complications around another one of the accusations against Columbus, which is his governance of the New World territories. And one of the documents that many of Columbus's detractors point to, as we've discussed in prior episodes, is this court document discovered in Spain in the mid-2000s that lays out accusations against Columbus, claiming him to be a brutal leader, uh, punishing his men, etc., etc. But many would argue that we have to look at these accusations in the context of Columbus's relationship to the Spanish who came to settle these New World territories. As we've seen even from the very beginning, in that they disobey Columbus's directive not to make conflict with the natives, the Spanish who settled the New World very often behaved in conflict to Columbus's directives. And as we've heard, because he was so often out sailing and exploring, the potential for a coup was never really far below the surface. In fact, in many of my interviews, three names come up over and over and over again from the Spanish settlers, Roland, Obando, and Bobadilla. To many of Columbus's defenders, these three in particular were responsible for many of the atrocities that have come down in the historical record, and Bobadilla in particular deserves examination as the man behind Columbus's returning to Spain in chains after the third voyage. He returned back to Spain because people were, you know, complaining about him because things did not work the way they expected. Everybody thought that they would go and, and find gold. So he brought uh, people to be colonists, but also to work on the, on the gold mines. And uh, Roldan, you asked me about Roldan. Who was Roldan? Roldan was somebody that Columbus trust and put him as a mayor over there. But he rebelled during the absence of Columbus against the authority of his brother, Bartolome Columbus, because they were tired of working. It was a hard work and they want to enslave the Tainos. And the Columbus brothers, they don't want that because the Tainos were his allies. And something that people won't tell you is that the few times, very few times that he fought, it was at the request of or with the assistance of other tribes because the, the, the indigenous people were always divided. So there is a rebellion. Roldan wants to be the leader. And also Roldan, he gathered all these people because he promised them that he would give them, you know, a better life, they don't have to work. Uh, he's also the guy who started the repartimientos. The repartimientos is what later became the encomiendas, meaning that he uh, gave these grants of lands to the Spaniards, and little by little he started to enslave the natives to work for them because nobody wants to work their mines because it was a hard work to do. And uh, he also promised them to have, the, they, they're going to have whatever girl they want to because the Columbus brothers, they forbade that. And that's that's one of the complaints against the Columbus brothers, that they, according to them, the Columbus brothers, they made them swear the three oaths for being a priest, which which was obedience, poverty, and chastity. So it was the other way around. It's not, you know, because people say no that they were giving Columbus was giving them women and stuff. No, it's the, it's the other way around. He forbade them to have women because they were troublemakers. And that's why, again, later, when they become bolder and Columbus could not do anything, that's when Columbus started to report all these abuses that they were, that they were committing. He accused them of being a rapist. That's why when the queen saw what happening, 
you know, that, he, uh, that they came with more slave and pregnant women. He said, why on earth Columbus is keep sending my people? Because they believe, you know, they saw them as their uh, allies. Why he keep, why he keep enslaving my people? So she, she sent Bobadilla to investigate what was going on. So Roland's rebellion gets back to the old world and the Spanish court. And the queen, coupled with her concern about the arrival of these 550 slaves, begins to question whether Columbus can administer these territories. And this is where she sends the aforementioned Bobadilla, who comes up over and over in conversation and is an important figure in understanding what really occurred during Columbus's time as administrator in the New World. So Bobadilla got over there to investigate what was happening, but he had another agenda. His agenda was to become the next governor. Um, basically, they give him a blank paper, too. Like, he could do as much as he wanted to when it comes to authority. So he, he wrote all these accusations. Whatever they said is whatever he, he wrote in that paper. So he arrested Columbus. He took his property, and he sent him in chains to Spain and with his brother. Even Columbus, in one of his letters, when he was returning back to Spain in chains, he said, I swear that I don't even know why I'm charged for. He knew that he was accused of a lot of crazy things because people were screaming stuff when he, while they were arresting him. And he said that not even in hell, people invent the things that they were accusing him for. But he was, he was never told why he was charged. So it was all uh, uh, without due process. Bobadilla forbade anyone to talk to Columbus about why he was arrested. He forbade to talk to his brothers. So when he arrived in Spain and the king and, king and queen heard about it, they immediately sent letters to release him and they sent money. And they apologize in their own way that they lament to ever send Bobadilla. They also sent somebody to investigate Bobadilla so they arrest Bobadilla, or at least they remove him, and they charge uh, Roldan and his mutineers with mutiny. And then when they went in a ship, a storm came and, and killed everybody. <laughs> well, they, they call that the, uh, the course of, of Columbus. They say that, that he cast uh, spells on them. But Columbus, actually, he, he predicts that the hurricane was coming, and he told them, please don't send those ships back to Spain. And as always, they did not believe him. So the, the hurricane came and destroyed and killed all his enemies. Uh, Ferdinand Columbus, he said that that was God. That was divine judgment because if they were, uh, if, the, if they ever made it on, on Spain, they would get away with all, because they have connections. You know, they have a lot of po political power, but they all die. So the, all those, all those uh, accusations were false. And even Las Casas, he said, even if that was true, that Columbus was mistreating them, the colonists, they deserve it. Because they were the same people who were mistreating the, the natives. And Columbus said, too, in, in, in a few letters that he was sending, that these mutineers, they took over, and uh, they were doing, you know, horrible things. He, he described that they were playing this game where they, they would throw knives at the head of an Indian to see who, who have a, a strong, stronger arm. And, and the winner would be whoever will kill that Indian with the first stroke. So Columbus was condemning all this stuff. 
I think a lot of people simply have not read his diary or his letters. I mean, yes, there were a lot of people that were killed and enslaved, but it was not his doing. He was against it throughout. He even hung two of his men who had done some bad things against the natives as an example to try and show them that this is not what he wanted done. Isabella sent over, first she sent over somebody named Roldan to help out apparently because, you know, things were not going well. All these men were marauding and raping and doing horrible things. And so with the second voyage, she sent back 17 ships and, you know, hundreds of men and they, they went doing all these awful things. So then she sent over Roldan and then Bobadilla to try and sort things out and help things out. But both of them did bad things too. And then Bobadilla, you know, captured Columbus and put him in chains and sent him back. And they did bad things. And Columbus is being blamed for it. Columbus, a lot of the times, you know, he's off still looking for the Grand Con. He's out sailing. He went as far as Panama. He ended up on the north coast of South America once. So he leaves these horrible people behind, and that's when they're doing all these horrible things. He's not even there most of the time. But I think a lot of the uh, current stuff has been a result in part, not totally, of course, is Howard Zinn's book that is taught in high schools. And it's I've, I've looked at it. I've thrown it out. But I looked at it. It's just terrible and totally wrong about Columbus, just totally wrong. And that's what, that's what students are, are, are hearing now. That's part of the problem. So Zinn has got, we've got to get rid of the Zinn book in high schools. What Raphael and Professor Delaney are talking about is something that many of the scholars that I spoke to say existed as an underlying anti-Italianism in the Spanish colonial settlers. This idea that Columbus was a man who didn't necessarily belong to their society and whose foreignness actually probably served to undermine his authority. But the point that Professor Delaney makes in her closing is one that I want to take up for just a second. The name Howard Zinn comes up very often in these interviews, particularly with those who defend Columbus. For those who are unfamiliar, Howard Zinn is the author of A People's History of the United States. And as I say, his name comes up over and over and over again as someone who has negatively impacted Columbus's legacy with what might be an ideologically charged interpretation of the true history. Professor Silvio Lissetti, who we've heard from before and who we'll hear from a lot more in next week's final episode, uh, gave a brief overview of Zinn, the impetus behind his book, and how it's impacted Columbus that I think is worthy of sharing. And Zinn comes in when he writes his book in the 70s and becomes a popular thing in the uh, 80s. And his book is uh, a Marxist, socialist uh, piece of propaganda. He says it himself. He admits it. He, he he doesn't have any qualms about saying that, and he sees everything in terms of the development of class warfare. So he's going to go find episodes and instances, even if he has to make them fit uh, a pattern, uh, because Marxism and class warfare really, most of his examples come from the industrial age. If you go back to the pre-industrial period of Europe, it's going to be, well, you can make a case, but, uh, you know... <laughs> If you take any teenager and say, you know, your parents aren't so great. You know, they did a lot of bad things. Really? Oh, yeah, you can hold this up to them. Oh, I will. So what Zinn, what Zinn does, yeah, what Zinn does is 
let's take all the episodes that are the darkest in American history, and let's present them as if it's their real history and only their history. Let's tell your parents what a lousy job they're doing. You say, kids love this stuff. So when they're in high school and they learn bad things about America and they're ready to protest things anyway, that's the way we've decided to train our generations since the end of World War II. Oh, they lap it up and they say, this is great. Oh, I never knew. I never knew this stuff existed. Wow, wow, what a country. No, we got to change that. I think it's really interesting that Professor Delaney and Professor Lissetti bring up this much wider topic, class warfare, the interpretation of Columbus, the imposition of Columbus as a symbol of much greater struggles in American society, even beyond what he may or may not have done in his actions in the brief journeys that he made here to the New World. And so I want to leave our episode here because next week for our final segment on Columbus, those are the kind of things that I want to discuss. I want to understand if we are in fact able to exonerate Columbus the man. Are his critics still willing to condemn him simply for the Columbian exchange, for a clash of civilization? Will the ills that come in the wake of this momentous occasion outweigh the benefits that have come from the joining of these two worlds? We've talked on a lot of these episodes about these ideas like class warfare and post-colonial thought. And I have wondered throughout, even if we had irrefutable evidence that Columbus was an innocent man, would a certain segment of his detractors still want to see him torn off of his pedestal? So that's what we're going to discuss next week in our final episode. So this is a light overview of all of the interviews that I've had. I'm debating whether or not once this is over, I might want to make some of these audio tapes available. There are some that are higher quality than others, and it's a decision that I have to make. But needless to say, this is nowhere near the wealth of defense that I found for Columbus, nor were the previous episodes anywhere near the amount of condemnation that I found for Columbus. So I just want everybody to appreciate that there may be some parts that we haven't discussed, but for the sake of time, I want to try to keep these as tight as possible. So I hope this has been useful. I hope those of you who have been enjoying this series found this one equally fruitful. Thanks to everybody who's written in and given us comments and feedback and criticism. We really appreciate it, and hopefully this is serving a a greater purpose. So from all of us at the Italian American Podcast, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with our final episode of Conversations on Columbus. You have got the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italian if you want your life to be great. See that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano.